Thanks for listening to the Henry Center podcast. We seek to bridge the gap between the academy and the church by cultivating resources and communities that advance Christian wisdom. If you'd like to learn more about the Henry Center, please visit our website at henrycenter.org. There you can find hundreds of articles, videos, and publications which promote theological understanding. The best way to stay connected with us is to subscribe to our newsletter, though you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're able, we'd love to see you at one of our upcoming events, hosted at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Our public lectures feature scholars and pastors offering careful reflection on a range of biblical, theological, and ecclesial topics. We hope you enjoy today's discussion. This is Brad Fruhoff for Sapientia, the online journal of the Henry Center at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. You're about to hear my conversation with Dan Bowman, editor-in-chief of Relief Journal and associate professor of English at Taylor University. We spoke about his path to becoming a writer and about his book of poetry, A Plum Tree in Leather Stocking Country. When we recorded this interview back in October of 2015, Dan had just taken on the mantle of editor-in-chief at Relief from its former editor, me. So we also talked about his new role and where he's hoping to take the journal. All right, Dan, thanks for sitting down with me, um, having a little conversation here. And I was thinking in prepping for this that we met, I think it's only been on like, not even four years maybe, it feels like longer, but, uh, and you had just come out with Plumtree and Leatherstocking County. Now you're taking over as editor-in-chief of Relief. And just wanted you to maybe share a little bit about what it's been like for you these last year, few years since, uh, since we all started getting to know each other as writers. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, Calvin Fest, this is a Calvin Festival of Faith and Writing year. Uh, which is every other year, and I think we all met two Calvins ago, making it about four years. Um, <clears throat> yeah, my first book of poems came out in 2012, uh, which is right around the time that I started teaching full-time at Taylor University in Indiana. And so I feel like my career is pulled in two directions that are not necessarily mutually exclusive in fact mostly the opposite however they can compete for my time and attention and so my own writing um, since you mentioned the book I try trying to work on my own writing I have a fiction manuscript and some other things in progress but the other part of that is building a culture of creative writing on campus at Taylor uh, which did not uh, it didn't really exist at the time when I came, um, or at least not in the way that I would like it to. And so relief, I think, is a huge win for us, uh, what it can represent and the way that we can rally around that project. I think it just it just kind of represents that conversation at the intersection of art and faith that we're so interested in that we want to be the centerpiece of our community. Can you say more about why you think creative writing wasn't uh, wasn't that important or wasn't uh, um, 
in the shape you thought it should be. I mean, I have my theories about why evangelical schools or Christian schools uh, uh, don't always focus on arts, but um, you know, why do you think it wasn't uh, as important there? And what do you see as the value of creative writing and poetry for the uh, for Christian college students, but also just even for Christian readers and writers? Well, I mean, I think some of it was just incidental as far as Taylor goes specifically. Um, the poet who taught there before I came was by nature really solitary to an extreme, um, to the point where, as I understand it, he would sort of teach classes and then just go lock himself away to write. And so we weren't, you know, um, yes, writing is a solitary event, but when we all emerge from our isolation with our work, we need to share it and um, find other people that we can, uh, people who are like us, you know, that we can connect with and things like that. And so we're trying to build that. Um, you know, I think about story and storytelling all the time and what it means to us. And I was I was talking not to get too deep into archetypes and mythology and stuff like that. When I was talking with students recently about this, um, younger students who are wrestling with that very question, like why is story important or something I should try to understand? Or so we were talking about heroes, you know, and saying, well, what, what's the deal with all the superhero movies that that come out now? Mm. There's so many of them. Why are superheroes so important to us? Why do we keep going back and paying money uh, to hear their stories and and watch their character arcs develop and and their plot unfold and all that stuff i kind of got a lot of blank stares and so i said well what about let's relate it to sports you know so if you don't care about superheroes do you or does anyone you know sit in front of the television on a sunday afternoon in the fall and go crazy and maybe even be wearing the shirt with somebody's name on it who is a multi-millionaire that you'll never meet mm. and is not from your town probably um, and so we can eliminate a lot of those obvious reasons why you might get so excited about this. And yet, uh, you're emotionally and physically and mentally deeply invested in what's happening on the TV. Like, why is that? So you're talking about story and the way that we tend to place our hopes and dreams, you know, on, on characters and enact some of the things, our frustrations maybe, let's say. Uh, mm -hmm. through in the safe space of watching somebody else do it, you know, and cheering for them, um, things like that. And so story is just so deeply built in to who we are. And I think about that, like I'm getting ready to teach a section of world literature, <clears throat> and we're talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh. So we look at cuneiform writing and the development of cuneiform characters and stuff. And so we, you know, we're looking at these... Um, pieces of clay that are in the British Museum with early cuneiform writing on it um, from the Cradle of Civilization. And I say, so when people started to develop these characters, they were um, using them to record business transactions very briefly. But then right after they figured out how to do this kind of writing, they started telling stories. And there were stories of heroes going on adventures and meeting friends and stories of what it means to be a friend and what it means to be a hero and all these kinds of things. So that tells me, you know, as soon as we learned how to write, uh, one of the first impulses was to tell a story. And so it's foundational and it's built into us. And so I do think about that and wonder about that a lot.
Sorry, I don't mean to go on and on about this. No, that's good. Uh, it does raise the question for me, though. I, I'm interested in how you got into writing, and, and uh, I know you're working on some fiction now, but you did start with poetry. So you need to tell a little bit about how you got to the point where you said, yeah, I want to be a writer. I want to sort of make this the major sort of career move for myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've known for a long time. And I mean, really, I went to a Christian liberal arts college. And when I was a student and took my first English class, I just knew. Um, I knew that that's what I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life. The way that we were talking about stories, talking about characters in all sorts of different settings. Part of it for me is that it was kind of the only thing I was good at. I knew that I had some facility with language, but nothing else excited me. I mean, math, um, the sciences, some other things that I've done, just nothing excited me like like story, like character. Because um, it has so much to do with the human condition and who we are as people. And I always felt like I was learning about myself whenever I'm reading about characters. And it doesn't matter if I'm reading books from Victorian England or poets who are just a couple years older than I am, you know. So yeah, I started with with poetry, I think, because of my fascination with what language can do and how versatile it is. And the fact that poetry enables you to be really playful and make up new phrases that no one's ever made up before, which is fun. And also for practical reasons, um, it's just it, was, it seemed more doable to me when I was younger to be able to complete, you know, maybe a twenty-line poem as opposed to. I was very intimidated by the great novels that I was reading. I didn't know how anyone could sustain that kind of greatness for for so many pages. Talk about Plum Tree a little bit. That book. Um, when you think about that book, what is that? What does that mean to you? What's what's that book mean to you? Well. Um, so a plum tree in, in Leatherstocking Country. Leatherstocking Country is the old nickname that goes back to James Fenimore Cooper uh, for the area in upstate New York where I grew up, um, right outside of Cooperstown, which was named for him and his family. And so it's a book about home. Um, the poems are they're all set, for the most part, in the Mohawk Valley, with some exceptions. And I was trying to figure out uh, what this place means to me. And the more I wrote about it, the more I realized it's, I'm not usually writing about the physical geographical place anymore. I'm writing about kind of the psychic state that Mohawk Valley is for me and what that means. So it was really important for me to explore that. Although I still write about home a little bit, I've, I've kind of backed away from it in my poems. And so I think it was a good, it was a good thing for me to be able to do at that, at that time. Now that you're not just creating your own stuff, but editing a journal that is curating other people's work. Uh, what do you see as the uh, position relief holds, or that you want it to hold, maybe, or or the potential relief has? What do you what do you want to do with this journal? What is the role relief has to play in in the literary publishing world? Relief, I think, is in a really great position because there are just only a handful of magaz literary magazines that are dedicated both to quality and excellence of the work and work that has a rich spiritual dimension in some way, whether it's overt or, or not so much. 
Um, there are really just a handful of those magazines, and some of them are really not open to the work of emerging writers, younger writers. And they're, you know, they've been around for longer, they're a little more established. And so uh, we need to have these conversations. And if you look through the archives of Relief, you'd be amazed at the way that these conversations have unfolded with some great um, veteran voices in the art and faith world alongside of newer discoveries um, and the way that these stories and poems and essays um, speak to each other and echo one another and suggest really important ideas for us. And one thing that Relief is always from the time when I was, uh, when I first started with it and then and when I um, was in your shoes for a little while editing it, it was always important to us to not be edgy per se for its own sake, but to be willing to um, get outside of that sort of Christian publishing bubble or that that sense of these rules of what counts as Christian. For people who are maybe um, used to thinking of Christian writing within a certain framework, coming from certain publishing houses and having a certain kind of quality to it, um, and, and certain things you can expect in terms of content and language and things like that, uh, that's not necessarily always what you're going to find in relief. You might find things outside of that. You, not, you, you will find things that are that would fit with that as well. What a what is a good thing to um, for people to think about? What would you want to say to somebody who um, is a little uncertain about encountering that kind of content, perhaps, and in, in, in the context of a Christian journal? A couple things come to mind. Um, I'm thinking back to uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and that famous idea of um, I think it's when I think Lucy is talking to Mr. Tumnus and asking questions about Aslan and and she's a child and he's a fearsome beast you know so she says well is he safe and Mr. Tumnus says it's not safe but he's good and so that, that line goes through my head all the time. Uh, Brett Lott has picked up on that and used that as a title for a couple volumes of short fiction from some different writers of faith and things like that. Um, I think it's a really important idea that, so the safe way to go would be, you know, what you see in the fiction section in Christian bookstores. I don't know if it's still there, but it was, you know, for the last 20 years. Novels that are really safe, they're not going to contain any language that's going to upset anyone. Um, they're basically sanitized. So they're safe, but there's no way they can be good if they're that safe. Uh, because I think to be good, you have to pursue truth. And if you're trying to um, portray life under these rules of engagement, um, I, I don't think you can be seeking truth. Um, life is messy, complicated idiosyncratic, paradoxical, um, often mysterious. So even if we claim faith in God and claim his truths as, as we understand them, um, there are many areas uh, where mystery uh, will have to prevail and suffice. Um, so I think that we should, in our stories and poems and essays and artwork, pursue the truth and the whole truth um, about what it means to be human uh, without fear, um, knowing that God is with us and, yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he can ha- he can handle it right. <laughs> at any rate. Right. Um, certainly, uh, there are ways of reading the Bible as good but not safe as well. Right. Right. Uh, so, well, hey, d- thanks a lot for sitting down with me, um, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys do with relief at Taylor now. Yeah. Thank you. We're really excited for the next steps and. Um, this conversation that's so critical nationally just to play a little small role in our corner of the Midwest is is really exciting. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Relief at ReliefJournal.com. Also search Relief Journal in your favorite podcatcher to find the first season of their new podcast. All production and engineering for this recording was done by me, Brad Fruhoff. Our theme music is by Broke for Free. Head over to our site, sapientia.org, to explore other posts and interviews in our Theology and the Arts section.